Welcome to Health Hackers episode 46. I am so pleased to be speaking to today's guest, not only because of her inspirational work, but also because a few years ago she was told she had only 30 days left to live. Welcome Kathleen, also known as the Allergy Chef. Hello. Hi, how are you today? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? Um, you know, I'm good. Those Health Hackers viewers who already follow Kathleen's culinary creations will know she has more than 200 food allergies and intolerances. She can't drink most water and has spent the last four years wearing an industrial mask to protect her from airborne allergies. Despite this, she is devoted to helping others living with allergies or special dietary requirements to create safe and tasty meals. Kathleen runs an allergy-friendly bakery and catering business here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's produced several cookbooks and offers online courses too. Viewers, you know that food allergies are a topic close to my own heart and Kathleen's mission, she says, is to change the world one bite at a time. So Kathleen, uh, let's begin with, was there ever a time that you can remember when food didn't make you unwell? Honestly, no. Um, and it's interesting because after being properly diagnosed and just kind of thinking back on my own life, like, gee, I wonder, like, you, and you think about it. No, I've been sick since like day one, just never properly diagnosed. And part of me accepts the bad diagnosis in the sense of, you know, I get it because of everything I've gone through, you know, you can help others, et cetera. Like I get that. And at the same time, it's not like I live in a third world country where there are no doctors in sight, right? And so I feel kind of ripped off by the world sometimes, I have to be honest. Um, I think it, you know, there are days where you don't want to be angry about it or resent the doctors who just didn't get it. Um, and of course, at the same time, it makes me so incredibly painfully aware that even doctors need better training. So, when you're looking back, what kind of journey were you on? What does it look like? Can you remember being really, really young and having reactions? Um, yeah. So I suffer mostly from non-traditional reactions. Um, the, a lot of the anaphylaxis type reactions didn't happen until adulthood. So as a young child, you know, in a lot of Western developed nations, doctors are trained that there's a pill for every ill, right? they don't necessarily look for the root cause of your symptoms. And so I just presented as a really fat, unwell child and no one ever stopped to say why. Um, the word allergy was not a stranger to my chart. Um, I had intense seasonal allergies. Like if you were to just touch me with grass, it was like, woo, you just set off the alarm bells and whistles, right? So the word allergy was not a foreign word. It, they just didn't put the word food with it. And so no one really stopped to say, hmm, this kid has these issues. I wonder if it's more than just X, Y, Z. I think a lot of doctors, they just look at your chart, they look at you, they make an assumption and they kind of write you off quite literally. Um, and even as a teenager, after essentially having like a mild seizure for 36 hours because of food, no one said food 
allergy. You know, every specialist came in, what happened? And I literally said, I ate the food, I got sick. Cool, we're gonna run all these tests. Next specialist, what happened? I ate the food, I got sick. Great, we're gonna run these tests. Next specialist, what happened? I ate the food, I got sick. Great, we're gonna run these tests. We can't find anything wrong with you. We don't know what happened and send you on your merry way. Like, literally guys, I, I literally told you the answer. I ate the food, I got sick. What was it That's like it. at school? Um, I guess it was pretty okay. I mean, you know what, even myself, I didn't know, right? I was just a kid. And um, I think the hardest part, so one of my worst reactions is actually just being incredibly overweight. In fact, hey, do you want to see a picture? I can yeah. actually, since we're doing Zoom, I can actually um, show you the before and after. So people watching the YouTube channel can see this. If you're listening on Spotify, Apple, or SoundCloud, check out the YouTube channel, episode 46. So that's what I looked like before. This wasn't even my heaviest point. Um, we think I weighed about 450 pounds at my heaviest. And then this is me after the proper diagnosis and eating food that didn't kill me, basically. Um, and so... For years, you know, being picked on for my size, I mean, that messes with your self-esteem as a kid. Um, it just kind of changes you as a person, but turns out it wasn't really my fault, you know? And so I think in school, that was the hardest thing to deal with. So beyond school, you're still just feeling bad, you're suffering pretty much yeah. constantly, is that fair to say? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I got used to the pain, but yes, definitely nonstop. What were your most significant symptoms day to day? Well, I got to the point where if you were to just barely touch me, I was in excruciating pain. And I was later told that my histamine response was just off the charts. And that's really what was causing it. The inflammation response was insane. And so, um, I mean, even like right now, like you can see it. I don't know if you can see it. I can see it though, but it's like my face is probably 30% more puffy than it should be. And that's just inflammation from food right now. Um, I still have never really reached a point of true neutral. Food still makes me sick. It's just, you have to pick what's going to hurt the least today. Um, and so <sighs> suffering every day, totally part of it, even now. What are your worst trigger foods, do you think? So foods that are not even allowed in our house would be like corn. Um, I'm a severe corn allergic, but not just like corn kernels, but all forms of corn. Corn has over 200 different names. It's used in the medical, agricultural, uh, food world, and all sorts of different ways. It's got, you know, packaging can be derived from corn. Um, there's gasoline like corn is in that so i don't even refuel my own gasoline anymore um it's on produce it's like used as a wax it's everywhere so we do as much as we can to keep corn out of our home um, i won't eat things like sesame bell pepper swordfish etc things that cause severe like hey you're gonna die type reactions um not for me after that it would be mm, I don't know. Lettuce, maybe? Lettuce is pretty bad. Really? Yeah. yeah. Lettuce. And when you said there are ones that make you think you're going to die, are they anaphylactic reactions? 
So yes and no. We, there came a point where with my own diagnosis, we just kind of quit Western medicine and even alternative medicine because everyone just kept saying the same thing. Wow, this is the worst case I've ever seen. I don't know what's wrong with you. You know, we were spending thousands upon thousands of dollars every month and it was just like, okay, fine. I get it. Allergic to everything. Don't eat what hurts. Move on. Right. Um, later I found out about mast cell. So mast cell activation syndrome. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. But for anybody who, who is unsure, would you explain? So mast cell, one of the reactions is they cause, they call it a range of anaphylaxis, believe it or not. Um, which if you have a true and simple, straightforward food allergy, you understand anaphylaxis. I understand anaphylaxis. And so when you hear the term range of anaphylaxis, you're like, wait, so there's a range of death? How does this work exactly? It's kind of weird, actually. Um, what it means with the context of mast cell is that your reactions can mimic anaphylaxis, but don't necessarily produce death. And so with anaphylaxis that most of us are familiar with, without an EpiPen, death is usually the result. With mast cell, you get pretty close to death or feel like it's going to be death, but you may essentially avoid death. So it's, that's why they call it a range. It's really bizarre. Um, and so I can definitely tell you, I've experienced pretty close to death, if not actual death. There was a point where we were pretty sure I was dead. I thought I was dead. Uh, Carlton thought I was dead. Um, you know, it's, it's quite a roller coaster for lack of a better word. So, um, yeah, those are the foods that definitely produce that. But then there are things that we don't know, like the, one of the most severe reactions I had, maybe, I guess it's been two years now. Um, we actually still don't know what caused it. It just happened. Um, and that was even with the mask on. So whatever it was, we just, we assumed the mask must have leaked and that's what caused the reaction, whatever was in the air. But sometimes you don't even know. There's so much uncertainty with allergies, isn't there? I mean, um, when I think I know what I'm allergic to, the reactions can vary wildly. Sometimes I've had yeah. reactions and, and I've, never, I've never been able to figure out the trigger. And with your number, sheer number of allergies and potential triggers, uh, how hard does it feel for you to just manage the uncertainty of everyday living? Honestly, it's not that hard for me. I know that I am the exception to the rule, not the rule. I'm sure there are a lot of people, especially if you're an adult without food allergies and your child has the food allergies. I think I actually feel really sorry for those people even more than myself because they don't know what it feels like. They're extra afraid. Like they have to rely on so many other factors and clues and different things. Um, whereas, you know, and then there's that feeling that you've hurt someone else if something goes wrong, right? So for them, I really, really feel sorry for them. You know, for myself, I just, I guess number one, I don't think about it all the time. It's not at the forefront of my mind. Um, it's something where I have a handful of safe items. I know that when I take a risk, I'm taking a risk and I do it by choice. Um, I'm not a huge risk taker. I mean, I, I weigh the options like, do I really need this food? Will it help me feel better? Like, you know, for example, I'm always trying to look for ways to improve gut health or overall nutrition. So if I feel that, you know, the risk is worth it. Like, oh, if this food works, I could potentially have a source of, you know, these six vitamins or something, right? Then it's like, okay, I'm making that conscious choice and 
I don't think about the uncertainty necessarily. Um, and then of course you don't go all in, right? You start with a small bite, but as we all know, one bite could kill you. So um, I think it's how you reframe it and just choose to think about it. But in a weird way, I don't let it get to me. Um, you know, I said my goodbyes to people a long time ago, right? I mean, I've, I've been there and back again, um, as I think Bilbo Baggins said, there and back again, a journey or something. I don't know. But so it, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me, I think, the way it bothers other people. Will you tell us about what happened at that time where you were saying goodbye? I mean, so you'd been given 30 days left to live by a doctor? Yeah. So this was at the point where the discovery was made that even water was making me sick and no one could understand the why behind it. Um, it was extremely painful just to even have a sip of water. And so as you can imagine, when you have a person who's living on 10 ounces of water or less per day, um, it becomes incredibly difficult to keep that person going. And so they were just like, we get it, we respect it, but you'll be dead in 30 days. There's no way your system can maintain keeping you going past that point. It was like, oh, okay, great. I mean, for me, I was actually okay with it because it was an answer, right? It was like, you're in all this pain and there's nothing anyone can do and here's your ticket. Like you're done in 30 days. It was like, cool. All right, I'm done. You know, we made it a point to make sure that the kids had the best 30 days of their entire lives, right? Um, you know, you just say goodbye to people that care. You write some letters, you know, that way the kids have something to remember you by, but you just kind of move forward in a weird way. I don't know. I guess I handled it in my own way, but yeah. Do you still have the letters you wrote? Yeah, actually, I keep them downstairs in a little drawer and I feel like they're evergreen letters, you know, that way they can open them at some point in their future. You know, the thing is with me, did I get better? Well, sure, I got better to a point. I mean, you saw the picture, right? I got better. But at the same time, I've not ever reached neutral. Um, and when you have that kind of lingering over you and you know that, you know, I mean, obviously no one's promised tomorrow, but when you know that your tomorrow is incredibly on the fence, you just, you live each day knowing that you have to do your best. You have to do what you can. Um, you know, I say changing the world one bite at, the t at a time, but I really wish it were a lot faster. Um, had I known you back in your newscaster days, maybe we could do a campaign and tell the whole world, you know, all about food allergies and I don't know, help them. Um, I guess that's really my thing. It's my mission. Like every single day, help people change the world, make it a better place because tomorrow's not promised. And no one really knows why rates of allergies are increasing. Um, getting an actual diagnosis, as you know, can be really, really hard. How many years did it take for you to get a kind of clinical recognition of your allergies? Or are you still fighting that battle? So I never actually had to fight the battle. I'm really grateful for that. We were very blessed. I always hear people's horror stories and I'm like, that's horrible. How could they say that to you, right? Um, I've never had to experience that except for once, but allergy wasn't even diagnosed at that point. Um, it was just more of like what I was used to, like being written off by the Western world without people who were willing to look at the root cause. So in, in the root cause sense, I understand what people go through, 
But for people who like have an allergy diagnosis and then have doctors still kind of look at them funny, that part I, I don't, I've never experienced. And I, I really feel for them because it seems silly not to, number one, take people seriously, but to really look over their symptoms and understand and want to get to the root cause. Like, like you took an oath to help people. And to me, that's part of helping people. But I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I used to want to be one. Um, at this point, I almost feel like I could be an honorary doctor, but, um, you know, it's, I don't know, it's, it's strange, the idea that a doctor wouldn't look at the root cause and really just dig in with you and help you. You mentioned your children, and not only are you living with over 200 allergies, but you take care of a family who also have restricted diets. Can you tell us a little bit about their different needs and how you manage to make it work as a family? Yeah. So, all right. So their dad, he's coconut and macadamia, which most people think is easy, but I'll tell you why it's not in a hot stack. So he's got those two. Our oldest is gluten and dairy free for cognitive functions, but he's totally an adult. He's moved out. He wants to live like an American. He eats whatever he wants. Um, let's just say everybody around him knows that he should change his diet, but he doesn't accept that. So and, you know, the funny thing is, for a long time, I couldn't understand people who don't take their diagnosis seriously, but he's one of those people. And I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, when the result is not extreme pain or death, I think it's easier for people to say, oh, I don't need that. Um, and so that's part of the problem, right? And then our second oldest is wheat, dairy, egg, beef, all bovine material and red meat. Now he was born allergic to dairy. We knew that right off the bat. And then um, wheat was diagnosed around age six, along with beef. And eggs became a severe intolerance, I think around age nine, 10. I'd have to think about that one to tell you the exact age. Um, we figured out red meat by chance, just because we don't do a lot of red meat in general. But once we figured out that there were some red meats that I could eat, um, then of course we tried to have him eat something with me and he couldn't eat it. So that's how we kind of realized like one at a time, like, oh, you can't have this, you can't have that. Common denominator was red meat. And then um, like he can't do gelatin, pretty much anything from a cow, he can't do. Our third, we lovingly call him Mr. Low No Sugar. So he's no sugar, food colorings, pesticides, food colors, preservatives, um, additives, those types of things. He eats pretty close to organic at all times. Mostly paleo-ish, low refined sugars. His story is quite the story. We could do a whole episode just on him. And then our fourth, we thought everything was fine um, up until a few years ago. And then we realized she does really well refined sugar-free and low dairy, low gluten. So pretty clean eating. But we manage it. I mean, at first managing was really hard. I won't lie. There were a lot of short order cooking because, you know, little kids' preferences, allergies, needs. You know, when our oldest was doing, for example, he did the GAPS diet for a while. No way am I making everybody eat that. It's highly restrictive. And so you've got one um, path for one person and then one for another. And it just, it, it got hard. It was very hard for a long time. Plus there's the cost factor. You know, for I think a month we trialed him on camel's milk. It was like $300 just for camel's milk for one person. Like no way do you feed a whole family that. Um, and so you just juggle it every day, 
truth is it's a full-time job. Um, yeah. We finally got to a point where finding the, the easiest thing where everyone could have it, that was great. That worked for a few years um, until we really started to recognize the bio-individuality of each child. And so I ended up doing a lot more batch cooking, but for each person and their name went on the food. You know, it just, I don't know, it, it is a real struggle and it's why I'm always acknowledging we are the exception to the rule, not the rule. I think in most families, especially if just one person has the allergy, it's easier to manage because you can either batch cook for the one person and freeze their food or everyone can eat with the one person. It's not common that this kid has this and this kid has this and this kid has this and this kid has this. But even if they do, you know, one of the cool things about our raised platform, we have an advanced recipe search where you can combine all sorts of allergens and diet types. So if kid one is paleo and kid two is vegan and kid three is a corn allergic, right? I'll just throw those three things out there. You can actually combine all three and get the recipes that meet all three needs in one go. And so it becomes a really easy way to just not have to juggle all these differences. I wish Ray's existed <laughs> 10 years ago. Oh my goodness. Our lives would have been so much easier, honestly. Um, but yeah, that's how we juggle it. Well, let's talk more about that, the impact you're having in the allergy world with Ray's and the business you set up. Tell us a bit more about that. I think the coolest thing we've ever done a few years ago was the Food Allergy Awareness Expedition. It was a six-week U.S. tour. We went around and helped thousands of people with food allergies. We did events all over the country. Um, some were private, some were at grocery stores. It was just really cool. Um, yeah, it was quite the journey. And we got to see a lot of the country. Kids have a lot of fun stories. They got to meet a lot of people and a lot of food allergy leaders um, you know, and their families. And it was just so interesting how many people didn't know about all the different products and options available to them with food allergies. And it just made me so much more aware of not just the education we need outside of our community, but even the education within our community. And it really opened my eyes to the fact that we could make a huge difference with the newly diagnosed, because I think they struggle the most because it's all new, right? It's not to say that those who have a diagnosis don't need the help. They do too, but they need a different kind of help. Um, and I think it's harder to reach them whereas because they're just so scattered. Whereas the newly diagnosed, I feel like they're a little bit easier to reach because they're all kind of searching for those same things right at the same time. Um, but that's one way that we've helped. Our bakery is another way that we've helped. And I think the coolest thing about the bakery is Thousands of people tell us all the time, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. And I would have never known it was free from if you hadn't told me. To me, that's the ultimate compliment. Um, oh, I forgot to tell you. I'm sorry. The reason that Carlton's allergy is such a big deal, dairy and coconut, uh, or not coconut and macadamia. macadamia. Most dairy-free foods contain coconut. And so when you have a child with a dairy allergy, who has a parent with a coconut allergy, getting them to eat together is so incredibly hard that you end up having to make so much from scratch. Sorry, I totally forgot to tell you that. I, um, that reminds me, so the other day, only the other day, I learned that here in America, you can have something labeled as non-dairy on a food label, but it 
could still contain the milk protein casein. And just yes. to show how important it is to double check ingredients lists on a product. Have you had many negative experiences with food labeling that meant you ended up having allergic reactions? Once when, when our dairy allergic child was little, I think he was about six, I accidentally poisoned him. And that was really what did it. It was the mislabeling because you look at the front and it screams, I am dairy free. And if you don't really, I mean, it's not that we were new to the diagnosis, but it was the first time really trying to purchase novelty items for him. And that's what got me. It was just not really grasping the, the labeling of it all. And so he had a massive reaction to it. And that was, I think that was one of the key times where I'm like, man, I'm never buying this kind of stuff again, you know, because we had our own little system that was working really well. Um, but it just kind of launched me into this whole system of, I want to know everything. I want to know everything they're not telling us. And, you know, you end up learning a lot about shared equipment, shared facilities, and just the dangers of food in general. Um, you know, has he had problems beyond that? Yes. He's had milder reactions due to shared equipment, which, um, of course they don't have to legally disclose on the package. So there's that kind of an issue. I would say we need a lot of change on food labels, but, you know, I understand the problem because we're in that world at this point. And so some companies are able to get down to the nitty gritty and tell you it's a shared equipment with XYZ, but other companies aren't able to tell you that because they use what's called a co-packer. And so the co-packer can change what they put on the equipment all the time. And so the company can really only ever say the equipment, well, the facility uses these products but I can't tell you day in, day out what's on the same line as my equipment. And so that becomes a huge problem, which is why I've started trying to plant the seed to people, you know, with connections. Hey, let's get some dedicated facilities that are co-packers for food allergy free like uh, products, you know, right now in the U S there's only two co-packers, maybe like three that truly are free from at least at the top eight level. There's one that's top 14 free but they're all full. And so no one new can get in, which means we have these limited companies that are already in and they provide top eight free foods, but there's not that many of them. And that means that the choices are incredibly limited if you can't do shared equipment. Here I learned when I moved to America that you call it the top eight, the big eight allergens here. Whereas in the UK, there are 14 that get highlighted on labels. And you're in a really unique position as someone who has so many allergies and you also work within food production. Is there anything that has surprised you about catering for the allergy community that you didn't realize before you started doing this work? That no two people are the same and that people are allergic to so much stuff. I always thought I was truly the exception to the rule. I mean, I say that a lot mainly because of the number, but when it comes to content, like what people are allergic to, um, because we hammer in, at least in the U.S., top eight, once I started working at an international level uh, through social media, I learned very quickly, it's not just eight. It's eight, nine, 10, 12, 14. And then with 14, depending on the region, the 14 might be different to the point where now it's like, I don't even care about the number. I just care about what's in it. You know, like, can this person have it? Can that person have it? You know, the numbers are important. And at the same time, so many people fall outside of those numbers. Um, and I, I think that that's the, the crazy part with working with people with food allergies. Um, I think that and 
how many people are willing to trust a doctor who tells them it's okay to eat food they're allergic to? Like, really? No, you don't do that. Um, especially when you actually are having reactions. You know, the only time that that's really not a true statement is people with mast cell, going back to that. Um, people with mast cell can test allergic to a lot of things and not actually um, have the reaction. And for them, one of the worst things you can do is remove a food that they're eating safely because they can develop a reaction when trying to reintroduce it. Whereas people with a true allergy, when you remove the food, the reaction stops. With an intolerance, you have to really keep an eye on it. Food journal day in, day out. So each person is different. And so when you have a doctor who's not looking at root causes, who's just looking at a test and looking at you and giving you these blanket statements, and then you trust them blindly without taking radical responsibility for your own health, I think you can get into trouble sometimes. Yeah, and you've just reminded me, um, talking about the variety of allergies, intolerances, the, the reactions. I have been asked before in a restaurant when I explain about my severe nut allergy, I've been asked, oh, how bad is it? And, and well, really, um, that shouldn't matter. Like if I'm allergic to it, that, that question should not matter. I, I really can't have nuts in the food. When you said your um, son had bad milk reactions, were they the typical kind of eczema, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea-based ones, or were they on a whole different scale? Um, so before I answer that, I want to say, I think the question restaurants should be asking you is, can you handle food made on shared equipment with tree nuts, right? I think there's a language barrier, and maybe that's what they meant, but maybe it's not what they meant. Maybe what they really meant was, well, if I accidentally mess up, how bad will it be, right? Um, but I think that's a question we should be asking. I know the coolest thing I've ever been asked, um, we were out and I was ordering something once and I said, oh, and no almonds. They said, is it an allergy or a preference? I was like, oh, that's really cool that they would ask that. Um, so that was really neat. But um, going back to his reactions, so he's contact allergic. If you just rub a little dairy on his face, turns bright red right away, like you know, hey, there's dairy in this. Um, if he ingests even a tiny amount, vomit everywhere. Like just, like it, for him, it doesn't even make it past level one in the sense of it doesn't go through his GI system to cause diarrhea, right? Um, I don't know that it would even cause eczema in the sense of could you even feed him enough and have it in his system long enough to cause eczema, if that makes sense? Um, because the tiniest amount, his system's like, no, right away. Um, and then after that, he sleeps for 12 or 14 hours just to kind of sleep it off. Do you so, ever get faced with questions for them and you from people who say, how bad is your allergy? Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe we have, and I just don't, consider it a big deal. Um, I mean, I don't leave the house much, right? I haven't in years. And when he eats out, for example, 99% of the time he takes food with him. And all the other times, it's only at a couple of places and he mainly gets fish and rice. And it's at places where the owners, like we know them, you know, and Carlton's like, oh, and if you do this, he will vomit everywhere. So before people even have a chance to ask, we've already told them, he'll throw up all over your restaurant if you mess up. So I guess we kind of preemptively answered the question. So I don't know. It's hard to answer because I'm not sure. 
it means so much when you find somewhere that you can trust, doesn't it? That you can trust the catering. It does, but you still can't trust them. So here's what's interesting. One of the times that Carlton got it to go for the kids, someone different put together the order and messed up. And he didn't eat it. He looked at it and he went, this doesn't look right. And Carlton looked at it and he goes, don't eat that. And it was like, who put this together? It was not the normal person. And they messed up. So even when you think you have a place you can trust, you still have to question it. What would you say to a new parent who's just discovering that their baby, their child is reacting to food and they're feeling mm-hmm. really confused and scared because if they haven't grown up with allergies or don't have an awareness, it must feel really intimidating to suddenly, like you mentioned earlier, you're responsible for another human being. Yeah. Tell me in this hypothetical, does the parent actually have a diagnosis or do they only see the reactions? Well, I guess to begin with, you don't have the diagnosis, do you? You have So in this hypothetical, he or she is just noticing, hang on, that food was eaten. Now this has happened. All right. If you're pre-diagnosis, take pictures of everything, write everything down, keep a strict food journal, get in, get tested ASAP, understand that tests are not accurate. It's like up to 40% inaccurate. Um, You want to request that when they test your child, do blood and skin at the same time and ask them to do different testing companies. And the reason why is because Different tests have different thresholds and you'll get a bigger, better picture of health. Um, you might have to find a functional medicine team that will test you for intolerances because not all board certified allergists believe in food intolerance testing. So you need to understand, are you dealing with an allergy or an intolerance? Um, once you get that out of the way, if you test positive for anything outside of a true straightforward food allergy, you must absolutely keep a strict food journal to understand every little detail Eliminate as many processed packaged foods as possible. That will make your life so much easier. At the same time, it makes your life difficult because you're cooking all the time, but learn how to prep and freeze food because now you're back to easy again. Um, Once you've got a handle on all of that and you get your kid to neutral, only then should you introduce um, new foods to experiment with in terms of packaged foods. And the reason I say that is because depending on your budget and depending on the foods available in your area, you know, there are some companies, I like to call them allergy focused, like Partake, Zego, Sabelle's Free to Eat, those kinds of companies. They're the ones you start with because those are the companies who, you know, the founders and their families have food allergies. They started their companies because of food allergies. They're in dedicated facilities. They get it. Labels are super clear. Info's on their websites. Like they are the gold standard, right? Start with the gold standard companies if you can eat those foods. They're sourcing their safe materials from free from producers and farms and they're the ones you want to start with and if your child can tolerate those start there if not you know they cannot have these particular ingredients does that answer the question yeah and uh, i guess whenever someone is with a good allergy specialist they're gonna trust in that allergy specialist to help them know when to try a new food and to go forwards like that. So always do it under someone who gets it. So you should do it with guidance with someone who gets it, but you might have to fight for that guidance. That's the bit no one ever tells you. Mm -hmm. We've actually quietly launched a new program for the newly diagnosed because of it. And we are currently in the stages of writing what we like to call the manual. It's more than 50 pages of information on every single allergy, right? Because turns out 
these allergists aren't telling people what to do. They're, they're, they're giving you your, your test results, telling you don't eat this, this, and this, and sending you on your way. And we keep hearing from so many people. I had no idea what that meant. I had to figure it all out after they told me what to avoid and, you know, what to do. So there are some allergists who are amazing. The problem is, is most of them are fully booked. And then you have the others who they just kind of, it's not that they don't care. It's that their level of awareness isn't deep enough. And it maybe they're not living with the food allergy. Maybe that's why they don't necessarily get it the way everyone else does. But um, some people have to really fight to get the care after the diagnosis. But some allergy specialists are great. Yeah, absolutely. Some great allergy specialists. And there may be people watching this now who are feeling how you felt in the early days. It might be down to allergies, it might not be. Um, but if they can't get a diagnosis or, they, or their doctors can't figure it out, um, they might have even been told it's all in their heads. What would you want those people to know? You know, it's funny that you would ask that question. I once asked a specialist, as I felt like I was just getting worse and worse and crazier and crazier. I was like, is all this in my head? Like, maybe I just made this up one day and I'm not really sick. And they're like, no, 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 trust me. This is not in your head. Um, and it was actually one of the most reassuring things that someone could ever tell me. So I would say in a weird way, as long as you don't have a history of like, you know, self-diagnosis and thinking about all these things, it's probably not in your head. And um, maybe look at alternative medicine or functional doctors who work with East and West who are a lot more open to, let me test you for this. Let me look at this. Let me actually look at the root cause of this symptom. Oh, you said this hurts. Let me ask you about this. Um, you know you have a good specialist when they're willing to read over your two months of food journals and understand. You know, we once had a specialist look at me and go, so I read everything and I noticed that 90% of your symptoms are on one side of your body. Let's look at that. And I was like, oh, I never even made the connection. You know, and this is someone who lives it and studies it day in, day out. And I never saw that connection. And so they started looking at neurological causes, like why would only one side of the body have all these symptoms and not the other? And, you know, they tried doing a lot of alternative things to see if they could correct it, right? And so lots of little things. I would say it's not in your head. Maybe you just haven't found the right team yet. But if you, if you really want a diagnosis, keep that journal and keep looking for a team that can help you. In one of your articles, um, you wrote, my dream is to make it so that there isn't another kid that gets looked over and that we can stop these problems before they start. Are there any particular theories or promising lines of allergy research and prevention that you're particularly interested in or excited by right now? You mentioned gut health. Is that one of them? Gut health is a big one. So, okay, air, water, and food, right? This is something that if we had 10,000 hours to talk about, I'd talk to you about it. So I'm going to nutshell it for you, even though you're allergic to nuts. So don't take that too offensively. Um, World War II, when we rewind and look at that, um, at least in America and other majorly developed nations, we look at that. We look at how air, water, and food and medicine changed after World War II. Then you fast forward to the late 90s, where you have this intense spike of diagnosis in children. Um, that's when food especially made a huge change because genetically modified foods were just let out into the wild. And we essentially became this giant experiment um, as a society. You know, if you look at people who live in a jungle, they have, you know, 
malaria. They have diseases that we may feel like we've eradicated, but they don't have all these Western diseases. They don't have food allergies, ADHD, obesity, um, autoimmune disorders, mental health disorders. They have a small percentage of it, like incredibly small, like in the 1%, 2% range. Whereas, you know, in developed nations, 50, 60, 70% when you combine everyone in all the different diagnoses. So we look at how air, water, and food and medicine have changed. And when you look at how we are essentially being experimented on, I think there's something to be looked at there. Um, you know, you look at gut health and the fact that if you don't have the right enzymes and bacteria, you can't break down food, you don't break down food, you develop leaky gut, you develop leaky gut, the wrong proteins get into your body, your body develops a reaction to these things. But perhaps you present with leaky gut without other symptoms that would make someone say, hey, leaky gut. Instead, they say, hey, food allergy or food intolerance. And so when you look at the fact that the human body is so incredibly complex, we have to look at all the underlying causes, all the root causes. And it's people like me, we are the canary in the coal mine, right? We're the ones screaming at the rooftops. Something's not right with this system. Someone should be able to drink water. I can't drink most water. Why? Right? It's literally what they've done to it. And that's why I can't drink it. Um, so when we look at all of these systems, when we look at them individually apart, it's easy for one company to say, hey, my product is safe, have it. And for the next thousand companies to all say the same thing. But no one's actually researching what happens when you have this product plus this product plus this product plus this product plus these 10,000 genetically modified products over here. And you combine them all and you throw them at a baby. What happens? I'll tell you what happens. Look at what's happening. That's what happens. And so does everyone fall prey to it? No, because no two people are the same. And then we have to look at genetically. Some people are just genetically predisposed to being more okay than others. Not only that, but you know what I learned recently, and I thought this was so interesting. Fad diets, for lack of a better word, but essentially these diets that keep popping up on the market, most of them are tested on middle-aged white men. That's who they're usually tested on. So what does that tell you? Everyone else, it may or may not work for you. You know, some of these diets, especially like intermittent fasting, they work considerably less for women than men. Well, who did they clinically trial them on? More likely than not on men. And so for women, a lot of them, you will completely wreck their hormones when you introduce certain types of intermittent fasting. Who knew? And so that's the problem. When we look at these systems apart from one another, we can say, oh, this could totally work. But now let's look at your individuality. Okay, well, you're this race, you've had a child and you had complications with that child. You were born with this one condition. You've taken you know, these different types of antibiotics over your lifetime and never looked at gut health. You've got these other six things that aren't diagnosed yet. And now we want you to do X, Y, and Z. Well, X, Y, and Z are going to cause a problem because they're not made for you. So it's a whole body system issue, which is why I've really coined the phrase lately, a true and pure, simple, straightforward food allergy with obvious and quick reactions. I feel like you have those people and then you have everybody else. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's mind boggling, actually. Um, I remember going through a phase of, of really trying to understand why I had my allergy and I heard about the hygiene hypothesis, the idea that a child grows up with kind of too much cleanliness with everything sterilized and then um, potentially making them more open to having an allergy. And then I remember saying to my mum, 
maybe maybe that's why I've got an allergy. And she was like, Gemma, you did not grow up in a very clean house. Um, <laughs> and uh, but but there's there's no consensus really. I find that there are so many different ideas and theories, and then those who will completely disagree. But so there's a bigger issue at play, right? You know how I say no two people are the same. Well, no two people get into the boat the same way. I think the germ theory probably has some validity for some people. You know, I look at our second child who was just born allergic to dairy. Well, he's genetically predisposed to food allergies, right? His grandmother has food allergies. Two of his grandfather, like that we can actually trace lineage wise, hey, there's legit food allergies here, right? When I look at my own situation, you know, I know that there's a history of autoimmune disorders, like, and not necessarily because of air, water, and food, but genetically predisposed to autoimmune disorders, right? So you have a genetic component, you have the external component, you have things like the germ theory, and then you have the combined effect where we actually have some customers for our bakery where their kids are actually just vaccine injured. And I know that's a hot topic that people don't like to talk about, but there are some people who don't do well with vaccines. We know this, there's vaccine courts and all these things. And you know, the promising thing is that depending on how you got into the boat, you might actually be able to get out of the boat over time, right? Some kids outgrow the allergy. For some people, if it's an issue of lack of the gut's health, right? Some of that can be repaired, but takes years. I don't want people to think it's something where you take a probiotic for 10 days and you get healed. You know, we know of a physician and she was able to reverse a couple of food allergies in one of her children through gut health building over the course of several years, right? And she was a phys physician doing it. So she knew what she was doing and was able to do it the slow and right way. So you've got like the dairy ladder and some kids use that and get out of it. So I think that's why there's so much disagreement is because there's so many different ways to get into it, right? Um, you can almost have like different clubs. Oh, well, I came by way of boat A, you know, and people associate their illness with different things. And I think that's when they start to disagree with other things. And then of course, sometimes I personally, and maybe you as well, I get frustrated how people are like, well, until science says X, Y, Z, I won't believe it. It's like, do you not see the 10 million people living with this? Why are we waiting on science again? You know, it's like, do we really need science to, to recognize that this problem exists? Like you said, there's huge disagreement and touching back to where you mentioned vaccines, I wouldn't want anyone watching or listening to think that we are issuing any medical advice here. No, we are absolutely not. That. No medical advice here. But before we go, I can't believe I kept you for so much longer than I thought I would. I'm really sorry. I could have stayed longer. Um, <laughs> where can people follow you and, and what's your website? All right. Uh, if you want to see us a lot, go to Instagram and look up at The Allergy Chef. So just The Allergy Chef, one big word. Um, I think that's where we're the most active, mainly because I don't really understand the other platforms, like for my brain. I just, I don't get it. Um, and then our website, theallergychef.com has links to everything that we do, our bakery, books, our membership website, um, our outreach, consultations, just everything all in one place. So those are the two easiest ways to find us. And Health Hackers viewers and listeners, thank you for being with us. If you're watching on YouTube, hit subscribe for regular videos. And if you're listening to this through Spotify or Apple, you can opt to follow the show there too. Kathleen, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. <laughs>